Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Historically, space exploration was the domain of governments and large corporations. But in 2008, a paradigm shift happened. Elon Musk's SpaceX launched the Falcon 1 rocket, demonstrating that private companies could indeed reach orbit. This event kicked off a new era, one that was ungoverned, vast, and rich with possibilities of an open market. In recent years, a new breed of entrepreneurs has emerged determined to make space travel more affordable and accessible. These companies are building new rockets and satellites and with increasing alacrity, launching them into orbit. They're not just interested in sending people to the moon or Mars. They want to use space to revolutionize our life here on Earth. From monitoring climate change to providing internet access to remote areas, the possibilities are just beginning to unfold. These companies are operating in a Wild West environment with little regulation or oversight. And of course, there's always the possibility of failure. But that's part of the excitement. These are the misfits and geniuses who are racing to put space within reach of all of us. That's the subject of a new book by my guest, Ashley Vance. Ashley Vance tells the story of this new era in space exploration in his new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale. Ashley Vance is the New York Times bestselling author of Elon Musk and a feature writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's also the host of Hello World, a travel show that centers on inventors and scientists, and previously worked as a reporter for the New York Times and The Economist. It is my pleasure to welcome Ashley Vance to the Who, What, Why podcast to talk about when the heavens went on sale, the misfits and geniuses racing to put space within reach. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me in that, that kind introduction. Well, it is a delight to have you here. You talk about this period of, of 2000, around 2008, as being a pivotal moment when, when Musk launched the Falcon 1 and really put private business, private enterprise into space. There was, it does seem, though, that there was almost a perfect storm because at the same time as you talk about the sclerosis of NASA kind of led to this in some respects. Talk about that first. It, it did. I, you know, the, we always, I think of space as, as just this very exciting, futuristic endeavor. But when you when you dig into it, the, there was this frenetic amount of amazing activity in the 60s and 70s. And, and then it seemed like we really locked everything in place. At that point, the rockets stayed the same, the satellites stayed the same, military contractors barged in, NASA slowed down, and and we we got locked in 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 just these traditions. And and it took SpaceX, some millionaires had tried to to make rockets in the past and had had some um, minimal success in really SpaceX getting this this Falcon One to rocket in, in 2008, it was a much cheaper rocket. It had much more modern technology. And of course, it had um, the drive of Elon Musk and his team behind it. And, and it wasn't clear at the time how momentous this would be or what it would kick off. But as I argue in the book, it, it is this, this very handy um, date where you can see things start to change. There was a shift that was beyond that. And in, in a broad sense, that suddenly Silicon Valley and people that had been involved in, in contemporary technology were suddenly starting to get involved in aspects of space and the space program. 
Absolutely. Clearly, space had been seen as something that nation states did. We had this mentality, um, which I argue in the book is, is a bit of a historical artifact, but we had this mentality that you have to have thousands of people in a government and all this money to even try these things. You could never fail. Um, everything had to be perfect. We couldn't experiment. And, and once Silicon Valley gets in... Clearly, if you're, you're talking about sending humans to space, all these rules apply. But when you're talking about satellites and making rockets cheaper, the Silicon Valley ethos um, really was what I would argue was required to see significant change in this, this industry. And clearly, tech companies and people of that mindset go after things, trying to make them cheaper, better, faster all the time. There was a lot of failure involved even in, in the Falcon 1. It took a while before Musk was successful. Right. I, I, this, this has gotten easier, but it's still still not easy. The Falcon 1 wasn't even that complicated of a rocket. It was quite small. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories, really, of all my reporting is, is the, SpaceX had this team of 20-somethings on this island called Kwajalein, which is about as far away from anything as you could get. It's between Australia and Hawaii. And they thought they'd, this is around sort of 2002 when they get there, they thought they'd build this rocket in, in about 18 months. They end up living on Kwajalein for six years. They blow up three rockets along the way. The fourth one was this make it or break it moment. Elon was he was not nearly as wealthy as he is today. He was running out of money. And, and yeah, this is hard. And, and it almost didn't happen. And it really puts in perspective, not to get too far ahead of the story, but it really puts in perspective the recent efforts, his SpaceX recent efforts with Starship. Right. I totally understand the public sees Starship blow up and and would maybe consider this a failure. Um, I spent five years on this book and lived with some of these rocket companies. And, and I can assure you, nobody in history, no country, no company has had a first rocket launch succeed. Starship is, is the most ambitious rocket anyone's ever made. So any data you get from these flights, these early flights, is really what the companies are looking for. They just don't want the rocket to blow up on the pad and, and kind of destroy everything and get no information from it. And and so, no, you know, that was a success to me and certainly got them closer to getting to orbit. As this all started to unfold from 2008 forward, what was the view of the government and NASA? Well, parts of the government, the Defense Department in particular, and and DARPA, the R and D arm of the Defense Department, they had they had desired this change in space for decades. They've been wanting something they call responsive space, and and we sort of see it today with the Space Force. Um, it, it's this idea that a conflict breaks out somewhere, and on a moment's notice, you send up a rocket with a satellite, and you put the satellite right over the place where the conflict is happening to watch everything going on. They tried to do this. They tried to encourage the military contractors to to pursue the type of technology and just failed and nobody could really pull it off. NASA was torn between two worlds for a long time. You had people who wanted nothing to do with commercial space and thought SpaceX was a joke. This could just never work. And then you you absolutely had elements within NASA that, that have been fantastic and they've put funding towards these things and, and helped make companies like SpaceX and the others I write about a reality. It's just been um, 
most of the the government side of this has had to be dragged kicking and, and screaming to this new reality. And that's really personified in this character you write about, this General Pete Warden. Talk about him. He's one of my favorite characters in the book and in life in general. Uh, Pete was a he's an astrophysicist. He's got a PhD, uh, you know, by education. He ended up in the Air Force, became a general. He worked on the, the Star Wars program that people might remember, the Missile Defense Shield during the Reagan era. He did a lot of black ops things that he, he can't talk about. Uh, but he was, throughout all these roles, he was this iconoclastic figure who was pushing all these elements of the government and military to think differently, to try to make things cheaper and faster. And he ends up getting NASA Ames, which is Silicon Valley's NASA NASA center. Uh, he becomes the director and, and this is later in his career, but this is his first chance to really have control and, and push these ideas forward. So he brings in all these 20 somethings from outside of NASA um, who he had found at, at conferences and, and gives them money to go try all these new ideas. He thought about new satellites, cheap satellites, small ones, small rockets, everything. And, and much of the story um, that I write about in the book unfold from the work that, that Pete did. And his getting sent out to NASA to Ames was not a reward. It was almost a punishment. Right. Yes. During, you know, he had been running this, this program as this kind of office of misinformation after 9-11 to try and try and uh, improve the impression of the United States in the Middle East. And, and the New York Times uncovered what was going on. I mean, it was it's loosely like a propaganda um, operation. And and the New York Times discovered it. And, and once the Times had written about it, the program really couldn't exist anymore because it wasn't clandestine. And, and Pete was in charge of that. And so Rumsfeld and President Bush fired him. He was still seen as a valuable asset, but but they kind of stashed him away at NASA Ames where they thought he couldn't do too much harm. And in fact, he did a lot. <laughs> you know, I would argue he did good, but it was seen as harm uh, in, in the NASA context. He was, he was still this rebel. I mean, he was fired almost, I don't know, 18, 19 times. He would, um, he would do things like that. They had a program that I write about where they wanted to make a low cost lunar lander. They looked at all the NASA budgets. It was always $500 million for anything. And he, you know, he's like, I think we could do something for $20 million send a cheap lunar lander and just show what's possible. And, and he had to hide this work literally in sort of closets <laughs> at the campus because when certain senators or NASA officials found out about the work, they would shut it down and he would have to hide it again. It, it, people, this probably sounds baffling to people, but it was really just that nobody at NASA or these contractors wanted to find out if you actually could do something cheaper because it would ruin the, the lifestyle they'd become accustomed to. One of the things that overlays all of this is the clash of cultures, that the culture of Silicon Valley, those that wanted to get involved in this arena, was very different than, than as you've talked about, the, the military-industrial complex, what they were doing, and what NASA was doing. Yeah, these, a lot of the 20-somethings that Pete brought into Ames, so this group in particular, were what I described as space 
hippies. They were they were idealists. They they were youngsters who who were really into space, had studied it at university. They hated the idea of the militarization of space, which which ironically is what Pete Warden really stood for. But they they still were able to work together. Um, but these were people who wanted to not like colonize space in some new territory, but to use space for some kind of good um, back here on, on Earth and, and really did have that, that ethos um, running through them. And, and then they also had the mix of, of Silicon Valley. A lot of them came from the, the tech world, the open source software world, and, and still had that spirit of, of innovation. You write about a number of companies in both the satellite business and the rocket business, and we'll talk about a few of them. How essential, though, was SpaceX and its success to all of this? If if SpaceX didn't exist, if it had failed, how different would this story be? How different would this landscape be? I think SpaceX was crucial because we'd had people have been desiring commercial space for decades, and we'd had... So many false starts. The millionaires who tried this before almost always give up because because the government starts to put up too many roadblocks. And I I argue that that SpaceX, as much of of just just getting this rocket to fly and having this rich guy behind it, it was it was more of like a mentality change where people all around the world saw what SpaceX had done and and thought, okay. Finally, somebody's done this. They're still going. They're going to make a, a run at this. I think we could do this too. They they sort of saw themselves as maybe the next Elon Musk, and there was some mystique in in all of that. But it it unlocked. You know, there was so much passion that people have for space. All these young engineers that they'd been stuck working at places like Lockheed and Boeing. It was kind of depressing, and and finally, it's like there was excitement again. And I, I think it just unlocked all this latent enthusiasm and passion, and and revitalized space. How important was the unfolding and understanding of commercialization to all of this? The fact that you could do this and that it could also be a profitable business. Well, it's it's huge, and it's the Drive. This is why over the last three years, about $280 billion of, of venture capital money has been poured into this. People see, again, not so much tourism or a, a Mars colony, but putting, we're, we're in the process of putting tens of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit as, as a data business. As I think of it as the, the next element of our technological infrastructure build out just like we laid fiber cables all over the world and data centers you know to support the the internet we're doing the same thing in space and so people see opportunity there really as this as this kind of data information business i would i i do present this idea in the book that that uh, this is all very attractive but we do not actually know how this is going to work out and, and it is quite a, a risky proposition and again, SpaceX, Starlink in particular, seems to be at the forefront of these efforts. Absolutely. There's there's two huge buckets so far that um, are clearly generating money, which is, is Starlink, which is a space internet system where you send high-speed internet down from from low-Earth orbit, and you reach, you reach rural places, you reach countries that, that can't be tapped by fiber optic cables today. It's actually about half the world's population. Um, and then there's, there's imaging. It, it's taking far, far more pictures of the Earth than we ever have before and analyzing them to see what's happening back here on Earth. But yet, this, you know, to your point, 
probably people listening know lots of the people with Starlink. This is not, nothing in this book is, is futuristic or maybe going to happen. This is happening now. The number of satellites going into space in the last three years has increased exponentially. And, and so this is real. This, this is happening. And you have companies that are also getting into this business competing really with, with Starlink and with SpaceX, companies that are trying to do one in San Francisco doing it in, at high Earth orbit. Well, again, and this is this is what's driving this this huge influx in satellites. So for Starlink, you know, sometimes they talk about on the order of 14,000 satellites to, to power it, just to give people an idea from in 2020, so this is like the entire space age, we'd only put up about 2,500 satellites in the lower orbit. So you've got Starlink with 14,000. Amazon wants to put up 14,000 satellites of its own. There's a company called OneWeb that's mostly based in, in Europe. They want to do the same thing. Um, and then to your point, there's, then there's a number, there's there's dozens of other communications startups that, that um, have slightly different plays. Some of them want, they don't want to do high-speed internet. They just want to do a little bit of data or they want to cover a particular geography. But all of these need what the industry is now calling constellations of satellites. So, so many satellites operating together. Is there still a question of what's going to be more commercially successful, whether it's 14,000 Starlink satellites or, or companies that want to put up satellites in geosynchronous orbit? There's a huge question. Yeah, SpaceX, their, their valuation is going up all the time. I forget what the latest number is, but it's somewhere around $140 billion. It's a private company, but that's what the investors um, value it at. And, and SpaceX is the leading rocket company in the world, but most of its value is actually tied into this promise of what, of what Starlink could be. The trend has been, you know, geostationary orbit, you're talking about, tens of thousands of miles from from Earth versus low Earth orbit, which is, is just right above our heads. And most of the action taking place has been in low Earth orbit. We discovered that you, you didn't have to build just one giant satellite and stick it in geostationary orbit. It was, it was probably better to build lots of cheap ones and put them closer to the Earth to get these better pictures, better data speeds, all, all of that. Talk a little bit about these other companies, these four other companies that you write about that are now so active in this area. Sure. Yeah, my book divides roughly into one satellite company and three rocket companies. The most interesting satellite company to me is Planet Labs, which grew out of NASA Ames. It, it was founded by these space hippies <laughs> that I talk about who used to live in a commune together. Um, again, people don't know this, but they have already surrounded the Earth with about 250 imaging satellites. These, these satellites take multiple pictures of every spot on the Earth's landmass every day, um, the U.S., China, Russia cannot do this with their government satellites. They have too few satellites that only look at specific places. And so this is the first time we've had this, this real-time accounting system of the Earth taken from above. Um, the, the other companies, there's Rocket Lab is a, a startup based in New Zealand uh, that makes rockets. It was founded by gentleman Peter Beck, who didn't even go to college, and, and they make a small, cheap rocket. Um, a company called Astra makes an even smaller, cheaper rocket that it's hoping to launch every day and mass produce like a, a 
car and then there's a story on firefly which is a rocket maker in texas but that story is really about this gentleman named max Pulyakov, who was a ukrainian multimillionaire who got into the the space race what is the nexus between all of this and national security and things like the space force that you mentioned before well, it's so fascinating. I mean, for the government and the DOD and their aspirations with Space Force, whether you're for or against it, um, all this stuff is good for them. They're getting the rockets and satellites they desire. Um, in the bigger picture, I think we're in for a massive shakeup. You had a handful of governments that, that had control of space for the last 60, 70 years. They are losing this control. Some of them, um, as a country, like the United States is, is the hotbed of commercial space. So it's probably good for the United States. It's probably terrible for Russia, which their space program has been crumbling for a number of years. This has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and and Russia has no commercial space to speak of. And so what happens when a, a superpower loses this thing that they're very proud of and that's strategic? And then you have the Chinese government, which is largely backing their very ambitious space program. And then you have countries all over the world that are now spacefaring nations for the first time, um, largely through this commercial work. And so I just think, I think we're in for a bit of turmoil and chaos and excitement as, as, as this new reality shakes out where, where everybody who really wants to do something in space will have a chance. How concerned are VCs and the money that's pouring into this? How concerned are they about government regulation, government interference, things that could could put a crimp in some of this? A little, quite well, there are concerns. Starlink wants to be this global telecommunications company. That's really the 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 end goal. But you are governed by you know, Russia, China. They do not want all of their citizens just to have the ability to get the free and open internet. And so they, they put restrictions around this. I think largely at this particular moment in time, it's just, it's a time of growth and there are not... Um, tremendous roadblocks to what's going on. People are, are largely excited to see how these businesses play out. I think the bigger question for the venture capitalist is, is like, who's actually going to make money from this? Because uh, this first wave of space, they start up, some of them are already starting to go bankrupt. It's a very expensive business. And so again, we, there's so much excitement and hope around this, but we, we, we've yet to see someone make a ton of, ton of money, ton of profit yet. Is any of this related to all the talk and it was all the rage a couple of years ago about space tourism? Well, space tourism, I think people fixate on that way too much. That's what yeah. I argue. Um, the Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are the two leading um, space tourism companies. They they had some successful flights and then things went wrong and they've both been shut down for quite a while. Uh, it's very expensive. You only go to space for a few minutes. And so I know people get excited about this that it for obvious reasons to me it's just not a it's it's not a terribly realistic business in the short term talk a little bit about the time frame and all of this one of the things you point out is that from the very first satellites to the sputnik etc to the end of the apollo program was only about 15 years and right now we're about 15 years out from the first flight of falcon 1 Talk about that in terms of, of comparison of speed that this is moving. Well, it, it's 
really the last five years where things went from interesting to just moving incredibly fast. For example, throughout the entire history of the space era, um, you were lucky if you were the US, Europe, whatever, you were lucky to fly one rocket a month with a couple of satellites. Uh, that was that that was good. That was like the status that was a high achiever. <laughs> SpaceX currently is flying almost every other day a rocket to space with dozens of satellites on it. And and Rocket Lab, the other company we mentioned that's um, based in New Zealand, a, a country that had no space program at all, um, they are also flying about once a week now and, and are right on SpaceX's heels. We, we're moving to an era where rocket almost certainly will be going off every day instead of about uh, 100 times a year worldwide. To what extent, and, and, and because you have written about both, I have to ask, to what extent has Elon Musk as a lightning rod, as a controversial figure, as such a large public figure, played a role or playing a role in the way SpaceX and the way this whole larger story evolves? It's funny because he's obviously quite eccentric and and uh, volcanic um, as a as a person. And SpaceX probably should be the riskiest of all his ventures. It's turned out to be the most stable. Um, it's running laps around the entire world in this industry. Uh, I'm kind of shocked to see how far they've come in the last 20 years. And so I think no matter sort of what mental state Elon is in. I think SpaceX is, is going to do okay and is setting um, the pace for everyone. There are huge questions, though. Like, if you look at Ukraine, um, you know, Starlink, the Russians came in, they tried to destroy Ukraine's communications infrastructure very quickly in, in the war, and Starlink backstopped the entire thing for the Ukrainian military and government. They, they've been running on Starlink all these many months. Um, Elon, on occasion, has complained that, that SpaceX is donating a lot of these Starlink systems, is paying for this, um, and it's too expensive. And he threatened at one point to, to shut Starlink off in Ukraine, and, and the government there and the military freaked out. Um, but this was the first time I think people had a wake-up call that, that my goodness, this this company has the power of a nation state, whether if they shut Starlink off, there was nothing the U.S. or anyone else could do to replace it. They don't even have that capability. And so we're now at the whims of this this very um, unpredictable human uh, on very important things. How much of Elon, though, and, and you've written so much about him, how much is, is watch what I do, not what I say? Well, his actions tend to speak much, much louder than his words for me. Um, I don't like many of the things he says on Twitter or in interviews. I'm not really sure why he's chosen to be um, so acerbic and, and combative, even with, with people who seem to adore him. Um, when you are, if you are able to take a step back, you know, Tesla, SpaceX, even Neuralink, this brain chip company he's working on are in relatively fantastic shape and and have changed the world. They could all disappear tomorrow and commercial space would still be real and electric cars would still be real. So this, this human did have a huge impact on the world. And um, I, I don't see that that stopping. He's, he's quite different 
in person than he is online. And I think that's what enables this stuff to keep going. And finally, as it relates to all the, the, the whole panoply of what we've been talking about, because SpaceX and Elon have been so critical in, in moving this forward and launching this, pun intended, to what extent is, is Mars still part of, of the dream of all of this? It's the absolute dream for Elon and SpaceX and a couple of others. I, the the part that I'm focused on with these satellites is, is independent of all that. But no, I mean, that is, that's Elon's life goal is to have a human colony on Mars. Starship is pretty much entirely devoted to that, that quest. There's now private companies that are building the first Mars rovers. We would never seen a private company think about putting something on Mars before um, this will happen. I'm quite sure. And so this is, this is happening. I think it's going to inevitably take longer than people assume or, or sort of hope for. Um, but, but again, we're this whole commercial era is part of this and, and, and is going to drive this forward at speeds that, that we're not accustomed to historically. Ashley Vance, his book is when the heavens went on sale, the misfits and geniuses racing to put space within reach. Ashley, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for the thoughtful questions. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.